Hi friends, it's Kristen here, and welcome to another episode of Broadly Underestimated. In today's episode, we're going to talk about an unseen side of an infamous story. In 1911, five men set off for the South Pole, and then they met with a tragedy that would shake the world. The story of the Robert Scott expedition is one of the most well-documented exploration stories out there, but there's this entire other side of the story that's never been told, until a book by the name of Snow Widows was published. So we're going to sit down with author Catherine McGinnis to learn about this incredible untold story. So today we'll be talking about glass-shattering temperatures, a race to the South Pole, and an Antarctic mystery. So buckle up. Welcome to Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to the underestimated ways to view the stories of our past. There are countless angles from which our history can be told, and each one of them offers an opportunity to travel back in time and see the world in a way that we've never seen it before. Before we dive into my conversation with Catherine McGinnis, I wanted to give you a brief introduction to the Scott Antarctic Expedition. Because for me, before coming across this book, I honestly had never heard of this expedition, which might actually be somewhat rare because this expedition is actually quite famous. But for anyone else out there who might be in the same position I was, here goes. So in 1910, British explorer Robert Falcon Scott headed for Antarctica with a group of other men in an attempt to be the first to reach the South Pole. So at that time, there was a bit of a frenzy to be the first country to plant your flag in the South Pole. So there was some other competition out there as well. And what followed is one of the most well-documented mysteries in polar exploration. And this story has been explored and told from almost every angle, except one. In Snow Widows, Catherine McInnes depicts the experiences of the unseen participants of the Scott Expedition. And they were the explorers' wives and mothers, because these women really went through it. They helped the men prepare for the expedition and provided crucial emotional support leading up to and then during their time in the freezing Antarctic. And these women sent their husbands and sons off, knowing that they would very possibly never see them again. So hopefully this bit of background information gives you even more appreciation for the conversation you're about to hear. I'm so excited to talk about Snow Widows. Yes, well, I'm very excited to be here. It couldn't be a more perfect podcast because these (laughs) women are absolutely women in time, you know. But the first image that I want you to think about is probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest, famous selfie, which was taken on the 17th of January, 1912, at the South Pole. And it's a lineup of five men. And the book that I've written, Snow Widows, is about the women behind those men. So there are the men in black and white, standing in a line, And one on the end has a string in his hand and he's squinting against the sun. And the string is attached to a pole, which we can't see, which has got the camera on it. And the string pulls the shutter. And so there are the five men. And this image was developed after they had died, which makes it particularly poignant. But also it's helpful to keep that image of a line of five in your mind 
And then behind them, there are five women. And I'm now going to tell you about those five women. So if I'm looking at the photograph on the left, there is a pretty fit looking chap with not terribly bad sunburn and frostbite in comparison to the others. His hat's rolled up so that the rim of his hat is shading his eyes from the sun because he's the one holding the string. He is Dr. Edward Wilson, and he was married to Oriana Wilson. She was his scientific assistant when he was working in Scotland to try and find out why the grass moors were being decimated by disease. So she learned to dissect and prepare specimens and do scientific experiments. And so this is Oriana, the scientist. She's tall, extremely thin, with incredible startling blue eyes, which people described as iceberg eyes that could freeze you from 20 paces. So she was an extremely bright lady, a scientist. And do ask me more about her later, but that just introduces you. So that's the first couple. Then one in from Edward Wilson standing beside him, looking slightly less strong, I would say, and favouring one foot slightly is Captain Scott. He was the leader of this expedition. He's wearing a black balaclava with his sunglasses over the top. They were just smoked glass lenses because all of their kit, obviously, was very rudimentary in 1912. His wife is Kathleen Scott, and she is a sculptress. I'm going to speak in the present tense because that's how I write the book. And she was very beautiful, but formidable. I think she was an extremely talented sculptress. She studied under Rodin, and she became incredibly interested in sculpting heroic men, who she called lions. She had married Scott specifically for his genes. This was a time just post-Darwin and deeply into eugenics. Leonard Darwin, Darwin's son, was the president of the Royal Geographic Society just before these people left. So she wanted to combine her genes with Scott's to create what she called a Hercules. And they together they had Peter Scott, who became Sir Peter Scott, who started the World Wildlife Fund. So arguably she succeeded. Right, in the middle of that line of five, there is a man with a very white nose. He is Taff Evans, who is the only working class member of this team of five. He was a rating, so not an officer. He was the top of the non-officer class. He was extremely strong, very well built, very muscular, but also very talented at any handwork. And he was very optimistic about about the chance of their success. Both Taff, who's in the middle, and Wilson had been to to the Antarctic with Scott on his previous expedition, which was the Discovery Expedition. So I want to jump in here and point out that Robert Scott went on this discovery expedition with the famous Ernest Shackleton. And then afterwards, Scott and Shackleton became rivals. But a few years later, Shackleton would go to Antarctica again, where his ship would infamously get locked into the Antarctic ice. And then he and his crew had to find a way to survive and then row their way to rescue. And yes, the story is as cold and harrowing as it sounds. So they both knew what they were letting themselves in for to a certain extent. They hadn't managed to get to the South Pole that time. But so Taff has been here before. The last time he came back, he married his cousin, Lois. Lois is a 
working class girl from the Gower, which is in South Wales. And she grew up in a pub called The Ship. And she learned to sing with the vicar's daughter and became a modestly successful performer in Wales, which is, you know, incredibly renowned for its singing, for the quality of its singing. So Lois was a tiny lady, very, very, I I think she was rather quiet. Taff had a centurion voice. He was extremely sort of entertaining and extrovert and witty and had a big fund of anecdotes. And their plan was for him to retire on the basis of the success at the South Pole and to buy a pub in Wales and for her to be able to become a singer. That was their plan. They had three small children. So the next one along is a man called Captain Oates, who is perhaps one of the more famous of these five. And he is standing with his arms hanging down. He doesn't look healthy to me. He's favouring one leg. The other one had sustained a wound in the Boer War, a bullet which broke the femur of his thigh. And at this point, they are possibly beginning to suffer from scurvy. And when you suffer from scurvy, your wounds break, the scar tissue breaks down. So that's possibly why he's favouring one leg and he's very sunburned. And he is obviously going to be susceptible to frostbite. He wasn't married, contrary to a recent Geographic Society paper, which talks about his wife, Mrs. Oates. He wasn't married. His mother, Caroline Oates, was Lady of the Manor of Guestingthorpe, which is a village in Essex. And she was a formidable woman, often shown in riding habit with a crop. And she was... I think very funny. I think they had a lovely, quite dry sense of humour and their relationship through letters is really interesting to read. But Oates was a paying guest on this expedition because it wasn't a Royal Navy government funded expedition. It was privately sponsored. And so Scott said that he would take two paying guests and Oates was one of them. So he was extremely rich. He was a soldier. He was based in India and he had a set of horses and hounds there, a set at home and a set at his army barracks. So they were extremely wealthy, but he was a very tough person and Scott had taken him to look after the ponies because he was a cavalry officer. Obviously, he was used to ponies. So he and his mother often spoke about the horses in the Guestingthorpe stable and how to look after the village. And Caroline was very traditional. And if any of the village children forgot to doff their caps, she asked for their name and, to, and wrote to the school to complain because she also owned the school. So anyway, then the last person. So this is on the extreme right of those five men is a man called Birdie Bowers. He is quite short and he's looking directly at the camera. He's looking quite strong. His feet are in a funny turned out position. He wasn't anything to look at, Birdie, but one of the other men on the expedition said, there's not much in the shop window, but what a shop. And I think the same could be said for his mother, Emily. So Birdie was in his early 20s. He wasn't married. He worked in the Royal Indian Marine, which was a sort of branch of the Royal Navy, a colonial branch. And he was incredibly tough. As they stand here in this picture, The people on the edge, Edward Wilson and Birdie, are the strongest. And his mother was a phenomenal lady, 
at a time when the class structure was very rigid and it was very difficult to transfer between classes, she started off working as a seamstress for her father, who was a tailor in Cheltenham. This is at a time when the Cheltenham promenade had iron railings and only the upper classes were allowed into the promenade. So she was on the outside looking in. And she then went to a teacher training college which was a way that you could, if you were bright, you could, you know, use your education and you could become a bit more socially mobile. She did incredibly well, was sent to a school in Sidmouth and then rose to become headmistress incredibly quickly. <clears throat> then she chose, instead of staying there in the safe backwaters of Devon, she took a ship to Penang in Malaysia and she started working at a missionary school in Penang. And this is at a time when you couldn't just fly there. It took weeks to get there. And once you were there, it was a total commitment. And there was no malaria vaccinations. There was no medicine or there, weren't, there wasn't the sort of buffer of civilization that you could take with you. It was, it was a raw experience. And she thrived. She met a merchant sea captain, got married, had two children out there. She often accompanied her merchant captain husband, Alexander Bowers, on his pioneering sailing around that area. And they, they managed to make a couple of new trading stations around the, the Near East, basically. And then she came back and Birdie was brought up in Scotland. So that introduces all five women. So I would say that Edward Wilson's wife, Oriana, was a scientist. Captain Scott's wife, Kathleen, was a sculptor. Taft's wife, Lois was a singer. Oates's mother, Caroline, was a lady of the manor. And Birdie Bower's mother, Emily, was a headmistress. That probably gives you the best identity. And this picture is very easily searched online. If you just search for Scott at the South Pole, you will probably come up with this picture. I feel like if you look at this photograph, you can really glean a lot about the situation they were in and kind of who they may have been as people. But what I love that you've done in your book as well is that this expedition is infamous. There's been a lot written about it. It's very well documented as well, which is really remarkable. But you've taken this and shifted it from the perspective of the wives and mothers of these men and what their experience was like on the other end of this whole thing. Now, of course, you tell the story really brilliantly about what was happening in Antarctica and the very harrowing experiences men had there. But the women also had really wonderful, terrifying, you know, grief-stricken, worry-stricken experiences as well that are absolutely worth telling. Absolutely. I think it was an emotional roller coaster for them and this appalling waiting game, because this image here, as I said, it was taken in January 1912. But the women who I've just mentioned, all five of them, didn't see it for over a year. So by that time, it was a posthumous image. It's incredible, isn't it? They found this image. They found the camera in the tent with the bodies and they sludged it back. And then they put it in a boat and then they sailed it to New Zealand. And once they got there, they didn't know what was in the camera because they couldn't develop the pictures in Antarctica. So imagine how extraordinary it must have been when this first came into focus and they saw these men. So let's take this snapshot of five men posing in front of a camera in 1912 and rewind to the beginning of the expedition when Robert Scott would have been planning out the entire journey. 
How much time does it take? How much money? How many supplies? What does all of that look like? You see, those are exactly the questions they were asking themselves because nobody had done before. <laughs> so they, they wouldn't have been able to give you an absolutely concrete wow. answer. They were improvising. So, so Scott hoped that he would be able to get to the South Pole and back within a year. And he realized halfway through this expedition that he was wrong. So that's why they had to stay a second year. So what happened is that they left England in 1910. They sailed from Cardiff, effectively, out to New Zealand via South Africa and Australia. But they sailed to New Zealand. They only got enough money for one ship. Originally, Scott had wanted two ships to be able to take the necessary supplies. But instead, they only had one ship, the Terra Nova. And so he just loaded it up to the gunnels and they didn't know whether they were going to go use dogs or ponies or both or whether they were going to manhaul. And the fourth mode of transport was cars or machines, which sort of are the precursors to tanks because they had, you know, wheels and they tried out caterpillar tracks. But anyway, so so he just threw everything at it. He took as much as he could, totally overloaded the Terra Nova. Emily Bowers when she first, so this is scrolling back a bit, but uh, when she said goodbye to Birdie at Waterloo Station, she suddenly had this incredible premonition that she wasn't going to see him again. And he was her only son and she was already a widow. And she, she had said to him, if I would prefer to be dead before you do anything like go to the Antarctic. But can you imagine just waving goodbye to your son and then this terrible, terrible feeling of you're never going to see them again. So she mastered that and kind of carried on. And she she was extremely brave and traveled a lot. She was very into the theory of education. So she went off to Italy and she studied under the Montessori. Uh, Maria Montessori was lecturing there and also Rudolf Steiner. Many of these women, the wives at least, were able to sail to New Zealand with all of the explorers, but Lois was not included in that. And I assume this is because she was part of the working class. Yes, well, it's simply that, that she was ratings. I mean, can you believe it? Uh, I don't want to go right to the end of the story, but Lois had never met Scott. So Taff had been on his first expedition and then when Scott realised that Shackleton hadn't managed to get to the pole in 1909, his first communication really was to Taff to say, right, I, I need you again, we're going to go back. And so even though he was, you know, it's called a jack, a jack tar, the sort of ratings class of the Navy, even though Taff was Scott's jack tar of, of choice, he never met Lois. That didn't even occur to me. That is crazy crazy it's absolutely crazy because because there was such a definition between the officers and the men that the ratings wives would never presume to meet the officers and it's you know you're sending your husband on this expedition where you I mean he very likely will not be coming home you have to make your peace with that and you haven't even met one of the few people that's on this expedition with him well it's most extraordinary so it is amazing to me that it's only a hundred years ago in a way it kind of is wonderful that it changed and the interesting thing is that it changed in their lifetime because these ladies lived for longer and so particularly Lois but yes 
the the money was a really difficult thing. And part of the reason perhaps it's so amazing, the story, is because you have the whole class system. So every time you encounter a problem, you can see how each person, according to their status or their financial status, reacted to it. So, so yes, you're right. So Caroline's reaction was to quickly rush out and buy lots of Burberry suits and Jaeger <laughs> jackets and socks and shoes um, because she was just determined to keep him warm and kind of. <laughs> um, but Lois couldn't was was selling everything because she couldn't she couldn't manage. Well, and the class system is also represented in how the women participated and or were included, right? So we know that before, for example, Ori Oriana was very involved in helping Bill to prepare for the expedition in terms of, you know, physical preparations, but also scientific preparations. They worked very closely together. They had this, it seemed like they had such a beautiful relationship, uh, really a relationship of equals. And, you know, Kathleen, she called Scott her lion, right? It was like, she was always trying to bolster him up and be a very, really crucial emotional support for him. But she also was the face of the expedition in his absence. But she was a phenomenally colorful character. Um, she uh, didn't like women. She loved men. I'm not sure how that, how that started. <laughs> But she sometimes said, my monomania must be curbed. She particularly disliked sort of wailing women who were all about self-pity. And she believed that you could be empowered by choosing for your husband to go and risk his life. So there is that incredible letter from Kathleen to Scott where she says, risk your life if you have to. Just, you know, please know that Peter and I, her son, and, and she could survive without, without him. So if there's anything he felt worth doing at the cost of his life, do it. We shall only be glad. So that's an extraordinary comment to make, isn't it? And she wrote letters because there was this dislocate in the communication. Most of the wives wrote letters post-dated so that letter she post-dated and wrote on the envelope, read just before you go on the final journey to the South Pole. So that was the letter he opened just before he set out. And when he died, that letter was found in his breast pocket. Oh, it's amazing, wow. isn't it? So she was a very colorful character. Her biography perhaps needs a little bit more elaboration. Her mother died shortly after she gave birth to Kathleen and she was brought up by an uncle who kind of farmed her out to a convent orphanage and they weren't allowed to bathe naked. They had to bathe in a shift lest they catch sight of their body. So it was phenomenally strict and conservative. And from there, she was a talented artist. So she eventually went via the Slade to study with Rodin in Paris and when she was, so this is her as a kind of 20 year old, she went to Paris and she went into the studio on the first day and she saw all the students looking at one corner and she kind of looked with them. And suddenly she saw a naked man jump up onto a dais, strike a pose on a throne, strike another pose and then jump down. And she looked around and she just couldn't believe that everybody was watching this. And she just ran to the loo and was sick. <laughs> And ever after, she was utterly fascinated by naked men and she sculpted them. If you, anybody who's coming to London, you will find many naked men all over, well, the British Isles really, sculpted by <laughs> women. 
and they are good, but they are very naked. She just, you know, decided that that was perfection. She wanted just to put heroes on pedestals for the rest of her life. So she did that with other men as well. Fritoff Nansen was Roald Amundsen's mentor. So Nansen was an established Norwegian um, polar explorer in the, in the Arctic, so in the Northern Hemisphere. And he gave his boat, the Fram, to Roald Amundsen. He didn't realize that Roald Amundsen was gonna use it to compete with Scott. He thought that he also was gonna to go to the Arctic. So that was a surprise. But um, uh, Fritoff Nansen met Kathleen Scott when Scott was away. And there is some discussion about whether they might have had an affair because for Kathleen, who is absolutely magnetically attached to lions or attracted to lions, Fritoff Nansen was the ultimate lion. And so they kind of, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but they spent a lot of time together. They went on holiday together. Um, I think that she tried not to. And so that's sort of how I write it in the book. But there are other people who think that possibly they did have an affair. Um, and everybody seemed to fall in love with Kathleen Scott. I would love to have met her. She was very good friends and the confidant of the prime minister of the time, Herbert Asquith. So he used to, between um, debates in the House of Commons, he used to drive to her very modest terrace house in London on Buckingham Palace Road. And if he saw that there was another car outside, he waited because he called her other sort of male groupies, the knights of your tea table. And so he'd send somebody in to get rid of the other knights of the tea table and then he'd go in and talk to just her. And he honestly came pretty much every other day. So Kathleen um, was very anti-suffrage because she was so anti-women. She thought all women other than her, she was the exception to every rule she made. Um, were sort of silly and too silly to deserve the vote. So she was really um, invested in the anti-suffrage movement, which is not something that we even look at now in history. It just seems so obvious that we have the suffrage movement. This untidy anti-suffrage, you know, anti-feminist stuff is so complicated. But um, so, yes, she was, she was very involved in that. So she is a pretty complicated lady. When she went out with Oriana, both of them accompanied their husbands to New Zealand to say goodbye from New Zealand. She and another lady had a big argument and it was about um, wearing your heart on your sleeve and um, showing that you were nervous that your husband was about to go off and take an enormous risk. And she felt that you absolutely shouldn't even show it. It was just pathetic. And so she had an argument with this lady and Lawrence Oates, Laurie overheard it and he wrote to his mother, and he said, Kathleen Scott and Oriana Wilson have had a fight. There's more blood and hair than in a Chicago sh slaughterhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's so amusing because that is what she would have read. This very proper woman in her riding habit, running her manor in Gestapo. <laughs> have read this very funny kind of take on this sort of cat fight, really. Um, so, yes, our, uh, Kathleen Scott was a formidable woman formidable but extremely brave and uh, very uh, you know an inspiration in terms of self-mastery yeah and she she just kind of as you touched on she ran in some pretty fascinating circles obviously being very close to the prime minister at the time and jm barry i mean there were so many names that it was it was very interesting to try to understand the world that she was living in during mm -hmm. that time 
She was very, very high profile. All of these women were, um, which is why another reason why it's so odd that they've been erased by history. Um, but yes, at the time, she um, knew everybody. If she wanted to get more money for the expedition, she just walked into Parliament and asked to see Lloyd George or Asquith or whoever was you know, in charge at the time. So yes, she was a very high profile woman. Uh, but yes, very interesting. So in November... They painted the plimsoll line out of the Terranova, which is the line that tells you whether you're overfilling it or not, so that the people at the docks wouldn't know. And they packed it with stables and tied all the huskies, you know, to, to leads on the deck. And then they left. And this is one of the things that we don't think about. They didn't, they didn't have a forecast. So they left New Zealand in an overloaded ship straight into the mouth of a hurricane. So now that the women have said their goodbyes, the men have sailed off into the freezing sunset and the waiting game begins. The expedition was planned to take a year with a contingency that if they weren't able to find the right weather window to head to the South Pole, they would wait out another Antarctic winter and try for the pole the following year. So the women went in knowing that this would be a one to two year ordeal. And during that period, they would be grappling with worry, total lack of communication from their husbands and sons, and in some cases, finding a way to cope without an income. So in order for Scott to be able to wait and go to this poll in the second year, since he hadn't got enough money to pay everybody's salaries, he asked who would forego their salary in order to be able to allow the expedition to start and, and to, to do the second year. And so I'm wondering, when you look at this picture of the five men, I think probably all of them may have given up their salaries for the second year because all of them were so committed to trying to make this expedition a success. The one who it would affect most is Lois. So right in the middle of that five is Taff Evans. And if he had given up his salary, which I think he did, then Lois relied on it and she had three children and no private income, no backup. They had also been told by Scott to include a confidentiality note in every letter that they sent home. So for Lois to give away that they had had to give up their salaries in order to be able to fund the second year it would have been a breach of that confidentiality. So she had to look as if she could manage. So in the book, I write about her going to the post office. And this is at the time when the bereaved of the Titanic are getting, you know, are speaking to the White Star Line about how their, their families are going to manage. She goes into the post office queue, goes up to the post office counter and says, can I have my allowance? And the lady, I think it was, behind the counter checked and said, sorry, there's nothing there. And Lois, who had no idea this was happening on the other side of the earth, said, could you just check again, please? Because it should be there. And the person checked again and said, no, nothing. So Lois walked away and somehow she had to try to keep her family going. They were in Portsmouth because Taff was in the Navy and they were in a little house in, in a street in Portsmouth. So she didn't feel she could go home to the Gower because that would be giving the game away. So she just tried to manage. And it's interesting. I spoke to a man called Gary Greger, who's written a fantastic biography of Taff Evans. And he spoke to somebody who knew Lo Lois and he said it had got to the stage where she had sold all the furniture and Taff had been given a gold medal for polar exploration on Scott's first expedition 
And she sold that. She sold everything she could to try and keep afloat. And then eventually one of her cousins came down from Wales just to see how she was and saw that she was incredibly thin and the children were, you know, barely, barely surviving. And so he just scooped them up and took them to his house, which always makes me feel a little bit... Yeah, it, it like hurts. It hurts yeah. to hear that. So and it's true. interesting to, to see the spectrum too of, of how the women were affected by this, right? Because she appears to have been the one most gravely affected for sure, right? But then you have the spectrum all the way to Caroline, Lori's mother, who she was funding his expedition, or maybe he was as well, but she certainly was buying him things throughout. You talk about letters and communications where she's purchasing things for him. This would not have impacted her at all, the financial aspect anyway. But to hear that Lois was so heavily impacted was really sad. Yes, it is. I mean, the Lois story is is just a little mini tragedy in itself, isn't it? So another really cool element of this story is the impact that the period's communication methods had on the women and on the expedition. Many of the men were sent off with a pile of letters written by their wives or mothers to be opened at certain points along the expedition. This way, the men would be getting touches of home to get them through the long haul and the tough conditions. And the men were also writing letters to their wives and mothers, which they planned to either send back with the Terra Nova, which would return a year into the expedition in case they made it to the pole that first year, or to give to their wives and mothers themselves once the expedition was complete. But this general period represented huge changes in communications around the world. Cable and telegram networks were becoming more widespread, and someone who had a big hand in this was a man by the name of Marconi, who was actually a friend of Kathleen's and whose developments in telegraph technology played a central role in big world events. So, for example, it was a Marconi telegraph that was used to send distress signals from the Titanic. And so really, you could say it's a story about communication, because when this is set in the early 1900s, there are cables under the sea that connect some countries. And the British Empire at that stage, the sun never set on it. It was a very wide extent. But to get a message from Britain to New Zealand took, you could do that with a cable, but nothing could get into Antarctica because around Antarctica, the sea ice freezes. And so Scott decided that he didn't want his ship to expedition ship to be crushed by ice so that the ship, after it had dropped them off, sailed back to New Zealand so that it would be safe. And then it only came back in when the sea ice melted to pick up news. So it's an amazing time with this sort of disconnect of communication that is quite difficult to appreciate now, where we have everything instant and general. Total isolation for these chaps here. Absolutely. And I will say that something you describe really beautifully is the these sort of modes of communication that they use and what it would have felt like to use them in terms of delays. And I mean, sort of a telegraph would have felt so quick and so instantaneous, but of course they didn't have access to that in Antarctica anyway. And you talk about pigeons as well, like carrying messages at some point, which was really fascinating. Um, You know, towards the end, there are some mentions of phone calls, but of course not everyone has access to that at that point. So it is really fascinating. I mean, I guess I will say to back up just a little bit, this book is written in the present tense, which I found really fascinating. I thought that that was such an immersive way to write it. And I assumed that it was written this way in order to give the reader the perspective of the people who were living it, especially the the wives and mothers. Is that accurate? 
That is accurate. The immersion word is accurate. Absolutely. That was what I was aiming for. But actually, I'll just tell you a quick aside, which is that because I've spent so long researching this, because the male story is very well documented, the female story has been chucked in bins, burned, erased, ignored, I mean, overlooked just completely. So it took a very long time to sift through all the attics and to, you know, look at history's cutting room floor is the best way I can describe it. And so I decided early on that I wanted to meet as many people that had met the women that I'm talking about. So that that's like a live link. So it's not just something that they wrote and that, and then they can curate it a bit and they can edit it and say, this is how I want to be perceived. It's, it's people who actually knew them. And so I went to Bayswater in London to meet Wayland Kennett, who is Kathleen Scott's second son. She's the only person who remarried of the five. And Kathleen Scott was very good friends with J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan. So when Barry died, she moved into his house. So when I went there to meet him, he took me to the uh, playroom, which is where Barry had imagined that Peter Pan came to the window. That is so so cool. It was so amazing. Anyway, so we had this, he was an elderly man by that stage, Waylon Kennett, very charming. But we had this sense of sort of, I don't know, stasis, something like frozen time or something funny. And so I said to him, could you describe when when your mother was here? You know, what was she like? And he paused a little bit and then he said, well, my mother's over there and there's the sculpture table and she's got a maquette here. There's a lamp here. The fire's on. There's this. And it was so pointingly, I thought, oh, my goodness, if I could do that for the reader, if I can really put them there, then. So I I thought this is ridiculous because nobody writes a biography in present tense. And I kept trying to do it more conventionally, but it just kept on popping into present tense. So I think it is the first biography ever to be written in present tense. Well, you pulled it off very well. I that was one of my favorite aspects of the book, honestly. I really like the idea of feeling like you're almost like time traveling and the fact that you wrote it that way. And then also that you included so many sort of pop culture references of that time, as well as historical events that were happening simultaneously. It felt almost like you were there. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that 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 worked because it was an amazing time in history at this point when Scott went to the Antarctic in 1910. And then there was, you know, many huge shifts, you know, the king died, there was a coronation, there was the Durba, which is where the king goes out to India and becomes sort of emperor in India. And then there was the Titanic. I mean, big news that we all know about. And so all of that was happening at the same time. But it these men in the Antarctic weren't experiencing it because they were cut off. So that's why if you tell a women's story, it, they are experiencing their parallel journey. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. But anyway, so they got to the Antarctic, they unloaded, they built a flat pack hut, and they quickly put as much as they possibly could into it. Then the plan was they were going to sledge as far as they could on their planned route to the South Pole, and they were going to leave food and fuel depots all along the way. And then when it started becoming the Antarctic winter, which they didn't think they would be able to survive in, when the temperature goes down to minus 60 and the sun goes completely and doesn't come off the horizon, they frantically raced back to the hut to overwinter in the hut to wait for the following Antarctic spring. 
So as Catherine alluded to, in July of 1911, the temperature in Antarctica plummeted to negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about negative 63 degrees Celsius. So let me repeat that. That's negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. These are the types of temperatures that would shatter glass and would actually crack your teeth. And frostbite was something that you dealt with on a daily basis. I can't imagine being in those temperatures. And these men had to survive, of course, without any kind of modern-day amenities. So survival was an all-day, everyday task. In order to keep fires going, they had to burn blubber. There weren't any trees or foliage to burn, so blubber was their only source. And that blubber kept them fed and warm, and it gave them water because it allowed them to melt the ice and snow around them. Now, beyond the issues with basic survival itself, like braving the cold and staying fed and staying warm, there were other issues to contend with as well. And in the book, there's this gripping moment where Catherine McGinnis describes a really intense experience involving men and ponies being stranded on a piece of floating ice while being stalked by a group of killer whales. And this type of thing was just one of the many conditions they had to deal with that could take their lives in a split second. So they did that and then they set out. So having been in this hut all the way through the winter, some of the men had got injuries, some of them weren't well. So, so the men kept on being filtered out. This picture of the five men would have been news to them because they didn't know who Scott was going to choose for the South Pole. It depended on who was fit at the time. And if you had a minor knee injury and you were sledging that distance, it would become a major one very quickly. So you'd have to turn back. So they set off about 20 of them. And then Scott detailed small groups to turn back. So they carried on and they all pulled the food until he got to the final place where he selected. It was supposed to be four, but he just he couldn't bear to leave any of these other teammates behind. So he selected them, sent the last three back. And then they got to the pole, but they found that Roald Amundsen, the Norwegian, had beaten to it. He had used dogs. They had manhauled. And so when this picture is taken, they have just found out that they have been beaten to the pole, which means that since the whole point of going was to put a British flag there and claim it for Britain, they feel that they have failed. But... Scott had, when he heard that Amundsen was even thinking of coming, he tried to reframe the expedition as a scientific expedition. So they collected a lot of scientific data. And I would argue at the end, 100 years on, that we are still using some of the data that he collected. We're still using some of the samples from the ice that they collected 100 years ago to be able to measure climate change. So I would suggest wow. it isn't a failure. I think that's incredible. Very important. Something that I thought when I was reading this part of the book and they had reached the pole, it was just so devastating. Obviously what I was feeling was not anything near <laughs> what they were feeling at that time, I'm sure. But it seemed like at that point, they were already in a pretty bad way. Um, it seemed like they were really wearing down already and that, you know, maybe reaching the pole and especially reaching it successfully might've been that little extra boost of morale that could have helped them. But there were of course, many other factors involved in the next stage of their journey and how that went. Um, but that couldn't have helped either. That sort of like dagger in the soul of their morale could not have helped. I don't think it did. 
When these men are at the pole, the Terra Nova ship has come into the Antarctic because the sea ice melted when they left for the pole. So it just missed them. So it brought back their letters from the previous year. And so the letters that Caroline receives are the letters that Laurie has written before he left, before he even set out from the hut. And so that those are the letters she's reacting to. And in those letters, Oates, Captain Oates, Laurie says that he is really frustrated with Scott. He doesn't think he has an idea about transport. As a cavalry officer, he would never have taken dogs, ponies and motors into battle, as it were. You know, it, he just doesn't see any logic to the campaign. And he is quite outspoken to Caroline only to Caroline, about how he feels about Scott. And that's part of the reason that this story is so important and so fascinating, because even though Oates and Scott were next door to each other in sleeping bags, Caroline knew more about what Oates was thinking than Scott. If, if Scott had known what Oates was saying to his mother, he would have been court-martialed probably for, for mutiny. So that's how phenomenally sort of their, their private thoughts, they all had to have an outlet. So this is why it's the untold story of this epic adventure, saying it from the wives' perspective. But when Kathleen Scott set out, because when the women uh, had, had anticipated that the men were coming home, Oriana went out to New Zealand to be able to meet Edward Wilson when he came back, and Kathleen Scott set out in a boat, and she went across the Atlantic to America, then she had an extraordinary time. I mean, you've read about it in the book. It's just, you couldn't write it as fiction. Um, she was just like living her best life. She really she was. was. Best life. She was <laughs> in nightclubs, but bumping into um, the, you know, the Roald Amundsen who had uh, beaten her husband to the South Pole, totally by mistake, bumped into him. But yeah, she was dancing, um, uh, it, you know, sort of jazz dancing, which was considered to be very kind of erotic um, in nightclubs in New York while her husband was, she didn't realise it, dead already in the Antarctic. But anyway, so she went across America. She went um, off with cowboys into the bush in America, had a brilliant time in California, got into a boat. Um, and Marconi, who also was in love with her, had sent her masses of flowers and free Marconi gowns. So then she set out on this boat going from California to New Zealand. When she was halfway across in February 1913, um, the Terra Nova came back from the Antarctic with the news for the first time that the men had died. As the Snow Widows were receiving the letters sent back with the Terra Nova when she returned with news that the expedition would spend another year in Antarctica, three men from the Scott expedition were lying dead in their tent, and two of the men were missing. Tune into part two of my conversation with Catherine McInnes to find out what happened next. Thanks so much for listening. For updates and additional info about broadly underestimated episodes and content, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.